13. That's on page 631 in the House Bible, if you have that. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man. Oop. I'm reading, I'm reading chapter 1. Never mind. Switching. All right. <laughs> it was a good one, but it was not what we're preaching. Okay. Uh, Galatians 2, 11 through 16. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I say, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? Which if you come up here, I'll pray for you, and then we'll uh, dive in. <coughs> God, I just thank you so much for Rich and the, the gift you've given him, him to preach um, your word and just the, the challenge that it can be. God, I just pray that you would um, just shelter him um, behind, a, behind a pulpit, behind um, what you have to say so that no matter what comes out of his mouth, the, that we can receive it the way that you intend it. Um, God, I, I just thank you um, for Rich and his ability, his abilities to lead us. Um, I just pray that he wouldn't be overwhelmed in this, in this time of um, transitioning to becoming uh, elder. And I just I pray this in, in all in your name, God. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Thanks. Thank you. Or what gracias. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, he is right. You pick up any place in the book of Galatians, and there's good stuff about the gospel. And we're going to be talking about the gospel today. Before I do that, because, you know, I'm old, I want to talk about the 1980s, right? Um, there's this great old uh, 80s comedy movie that I'm not really, I'm not, you know, don't need to identify. That's not really the point. What the movie was about actually has nothing to do with the point I'm going to make today. Um, but there's this scene, and I absolutely love this scene um, in the movie. So football team is outstanding. Um, like, you know, standing all together, and their coach is talking to them, and he's giving, they're at practice, and he, they're standing there, and the coach is giving them this pep talk and talking about, um, you know, how important it is that they're good this week, and if they're good this week, and then they win, and then good things happen from there, and there, and there, and then, you know, and, and, and so he just keeps up, and he's, he's revving them up, and he's like, are, 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 can we do this? And they're all like, yeah, can we do this? Yeah. And, um, and then, you know, he gets all excited. He goes, all right, hit the showers, and they all run off. And then as the team's running off, he goes, darn it, we forgot to practice. Um, the coach spent a lot of time and energy on his pep talk. Um, so much time and energy on the pep talk that he forgot the reason that they were there, the practice. Um, the, the reason for practice, the purpose of practice is to do what? Get ready, to practice. I mean, you know, that's not a trick question. It really is. Um, it, it's just it's the it's the practice. You're, if you go to practice, you're the purpose is to get practice. That's so you can get better, so you can get ready for the competition itself. The pep talk has its place. The pep talk in and of itself is a good thing. Um, it, it inspires. It can encourage. You get everybody ready for the practice. It, it can um, it can kind of rev you up so that you go out and you're you're excited to be doing what you're doing and you put energy into what you're doing. Um, 
And by no means would we say, don't have the pep talk. Um, but the pep talk isn't the purpose of being there. Actually, practicing football is the reason to be there. That's why you have the practice. Um, to make the pep talk the focus of the practice and not the practicing defeats the purpose of having the practice in the first place. Churches do this same thing all the time. We can spend so much time and energy on, on all of these details, and trust, there are a lot of details uh, that, that, you, that, you, that you work out as you're, as you're trying to, 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 to carry out the work of the church. Uh, but we spend so much time and energy on those um, that we can lose track of the reason why we're here. Um, things like building issues and music styles and church programs and events and et cetera and et cetera and et cetera. So many things that we add on top of the reason that we do that distract us from the reason, distract us to the purpose of why we are here. Now, all of those things can be necessary and good. You need to figure out what your music's going to be like. You have to take it. You have to, if you're going to meet, you got to have a place to meet, so you have to take care of the building. So don't hear me say, don't worry about these other things, but what we don't do is we don't focus on these other things. These things do not become central to what we're being as a church. They're the things that help us further or promote or serve the thing. Just like the pep talk will serve the purpose of the practice, but doesn't replace the purpose of the practice. So all the other things the church is about doesn't replace the focus, the reason why we have the church. As the church, we need to focus on the one thing that is supposed to be um, the focus of the church, and that is the gospel. Uh, the gospel. This is our third series in what we're calling our Karst Distinctive Series. The things that make us the church um, that we are. Now, the first one, if you weren't here, I'm going to recap them. So the first one we had is that as a church, we are word-driven. We are word-driven. Um, what that means is that the Bible, the Word of God, informs us and instructs us on who God is, on what He has done, on who we are, and on what we are called to do. So as a church, we all agree that the Bible will govern our purpose, what, what we are and what we are going to do. The second distinctive we have is that we are God-centered. We are God-centered, that we exist for the glory of God, and thus all that we are and all that we do is to glorify God. As a church, the things that we do are for his glory, not for our own, not for some other good purpose, not just for the sake of serving the city or serving the poor or, or being a good community, but to give glory to God. Our third um, focus today uh, tells us exactly what the word, the first purpose, um, that we have, this is what the Word says is supposed to be our focus. This is what the Word says helps us fulfill our second purpose, to glorify God, um, and that is to focus on the gospel, focus on his story, the story revealed um, in the gospel, the good news, um, literally that's what gospel means, good news, about how God reconciles us to him through the life, death, and resurrection and continuing ministry of his son, Jesus Christ. So our third distinctive is that we are gospel-focused. We are gospel-focused. Um, we should have a slide. We actually needed two because this one's wordy. Um, but this, kinda, this is our chorus position on what it means for us to be gospel-focused. Our hope is in Christ's life, death, and resurrection as the only means of salvation and spiritual growth. 
Karras believes that the gospel does not amount to the ABCs of the Christian life, but rather the A to Z. What we mean by that is all of our lives should be lived in the light of the gospel of our Lord. Therefore, the teaching of the gospel shouldn't be limited to Sunday sermons. The relevance of the gospel isn't limited to our initial experience of salvation. We need God's good news of Christ's person and work every minute of every day. Cars will then be gospel-focused instead of self-focused. We long to live and breathe the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, so that's what we mean when we say um, gospel-focused. And if I said, if you all got that, I'll sit down. But um, let's, let's flesh that out a little more. Let's see that Scripture tells us um, that that is who we are, we are to be, that as a church we are to be gospel-focused. Um, first of all, if we're going to be gospel-focused, we need to understand one really big thing. We need to understand what the gospel is. It's impossible to focus on something that we don't understand, that we know, don't know. Uh, so, so what does it mean? Uh, what, does, what do we mean by the gospel? What is uh, the gospel that we're going to focus on? To understand um, the things that Paul is saying here. Um, uh, about Jews and Gentiles and justification and faith and all of these um, things, we need to understand the story behind them, uh, a story that his readers would have understood. We understand that the entirety of the Bible is really the story of the gospel, literally good news. It is a story um, that we sometimes call the story of redemptive history, what God was doing from the beginning all the way to the end um, of time. Um, all of that is the story of the gospel. The gospel is not just a moment in time. Um, we, we, we often look at the gospel and we can, we can focus on Christ's death without looking about everything that happened before and without looking at everything that happens after that. Um, in our lives, we can look at the gospel as one moment in time. There was a time, if you're a Christian, there was a time that you came to believe, to trust in what Jesus Christ had done for you, uh, and, and in a lot of churches, they believe that that's when the gospel is relevant, at that moment. Do you believe in the gospel? Yes. All right, you are saved. You are now Christian. Now let's move on from the gospel to these other things. That is not what we do. Let's look at verses 15 and 16 again. Um, Paul's telling us that, no, it's not the gospel and then we move on. It's that the gospel is, is the everything of who we are. Verses 15 through 16 say this, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Okay, so we have a lot of words here. We have a lot of depth here. We have this idea of Jews and Gentiles. We have this idea of justification. We have this idea of works of the law. We have this idea of faith in Christ. But, but Paul's making, what Paul's saying is the focus is on Christ and what he's done. Let's, let's look at what, what that is. What is it that Jesus actually has done, has done throughout history um, to give us the story of the gospel, to give us a story of how God has saved us, how God has redeemed us, and how God has given us the focus of who we're supposed to be. The first, um, when we're talking, often we, we break the gospel story down into, into elements to help us remember uh, and, and learn. I know my MC will tell, and we'll actually touch on one, my MC will tell you, we do that a lot. We, we, we mention our point of the gospel. Um, I'm going to look at is like the big story. So we've got um, these, these four general categories for the big story of what God has done for all of creation, all of humanity. Um, 
in the gospel. The first one, uh, first point is the idea of creation. So we start at the beginning because that's where God started. Uh, the, the story of who God is and what he has done um, through Jesus Christ starts at creation. Before there was time or space or matter or anything, there was God. Father, Son, and Spirit dwelling together in perfect relationship. There never was a time, there never was a state of being in which there wasn't God. Um, he always, you know, he always, we say was, but the way he actually puts it is, I, I always am. Um, before there was anything, I am. He is just a being. But he, uh, his existence separated from time and space, he decided, you know what? I'm going to create. Now, he didn't need this. He had perfect relationship. He had perfect relationship in the Father, Son, and Spirit all together, all not needing anything. Um, but, but what God did is that he decided to create because he wanted to do something through that. He wanted to share something about who he was. He wanted to fulfill that other purpose of the church we talked about, to, to show his glory. And so he created Genesis 1.1. Um, we start at the beginning. This is the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything um, that is. Everything that is is because of God. Time, space, the universe, the stars, the planets, including this planet, the seas, the earth, the plants, the animals. All of it is ultimately because God created. And God created and said it is good. It was a good thing. It comes straight from the heart and mind and hand of God. God created. And then, creating all this stuff, God created us, men and women. He created us in his image. He created us to be the closest thing that, to him that could be created. He said, the thing that's going to be most like me and the thing that I am going to have the most important relationship are us, our men and women. Um, these are the people, the, this is my creation. This is the, the zenith, the summit of my creation. This is why I'm doing it. And he created man. He created everything else and said, good. He created man and said, this is very good. This is very good. Um, he created us. The most privileged thing that he created um, was us. And then he took us and he placed us in his creation to care for it and to have dominion over it. Um, to have dominion, uh, we talk about a dominion. A dominion is something that is ruled over. God gave us the earth to rule over it, to care for it, to, to use it for his glory and our good. He gave us relationship with him. He gave us relationship. Um, in, in, in the days of early creation, God would simply dwell. He would simply walk amongst his people. Um, um, there was perfect relationship. And um, he gave, uh, and when he gave us this relationship, he asked for faithfulness and obedience to him in return. That that, um, that that because he loved us and he created to show us him and he gave relationship to us, he created us for him. Um, not that he needed us, but because he wanted us. Um, he wanted us to exist for us and he wanted us to exist um, for him. So we were to give him faithfulness and obedience to him. That's the story of creation. Very quickly after, the, after, after creation comes the second part of the gospel, fall. So we had creation. God made everything, and it was very good. Um, but then it stopped being very good. Um, man, because man was tempted by Satan, 
to disobey God. And, and the way, you know, we often go back to that story is, is, what was our disobedience? We ate a piece of fruit. Well, that, you know, is like, no, that wasn't the disobedience. The tempter, Satan, tempted us to sin by saying, you can be like God. And thus you can be your own God. Um, to be like God, um, because we would have the knowledge of good and evil, something that belonged expressly to God. So we sinned. So we sought to be our own God instead of giving him the faithfulness and obedience that he deserved. And because of that sin, um, that disobedience, that, that word that we often use for rebellion, he re we rebelled against God. And God had already told, uh, had told his people, if you do this one thing, if you eat of this tree in which I've embodied the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. You will surely die. This is not for you. This is for me. Um, and this is for me so that we can share this relationship. So we can share this relationship where I love you and dwell with you and you obey me and you um, are faithful to me. But I, I place this here as a reminder of who I am and who you are. And man said, we don't want who you are. We want who we are. So we rebelled against him. And because of that, man fell from his place of favor with God and instead fell under judgment. Because man chose self over God, all of creation rebelled against man. Um, the earth would resist man's attempts to care for it um, and use it, the, uh, the Bible tells, when, when, when God proclaims this curse um, on Adam, he, he tells him that, the, that the, the, your, your labor will be hard and, and the ground will produce thorns and thistles. It will, it will essentially, the earth will fight you um, because you have decided um, to fight it by choosing to fight me. It's cursed. And, and the ultimate of the curse is that, is that God told man that you would return to the earth. Um, from which you were made, um, basically saying, you will die, you will go into the grave, you will, um, you will be lost. And that sin, when we talk about that sin, we're not just talking about a story um, from a long time ago. We're talking about a story that is our story. Romans 5.12 says this, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to who? To all men because all sin. Here's the, here's the deal. Some people say, why should we be punished because Adam and Eve sinned? The truth is, Adam was the best shot we would ever have. Um, he, he, as, as, our, as our father and as our ultimate representative, no one was going to do better, and yet he still failed. Um, if you put any of us in the same situation, we would have done it too. Um, we didn't have the shot. He, understand, he's literally shaped by, and we say that literally shaped figuratively by the hand of God, but he's shaped by the hands of God. God literally, now again, well, the Bible says he did it, but God breathed his breath of life into him. He was the ultimate. He was the perfect creation, and yet he was led away. He was led away by sin. And so because, because he sinned and all of us come from, our, from, from him, all of us have that same nature. All of us bear um, that same sin. And I think our lives tell us that, um, that we sin a lot over and over and over. How many times in a day do you put yourself above 
everything else. We do that a lot. Um, this testimony that, um, that all of us are sin because of Adam is also a testimony that all men, um, desperate all men, because all men sin. Not only do we sin in position because of God, but we sin in our actual lives because we just sin. And because of our sin, left to ourselves, to be separated from God forever, for he is perfect. He can't, the Bible tells us he can't even look on us in our sin. So in our sin, we live to die. In our sin, we live to die. And when we die, we suffer separation from God from all time, suffering his righteous punishment on the sin we chose because we were bound to choose it. Um, we could do nothing else. We were literally slaves to sin. That's fall. That's the bad news um, of the good news of the gospel. Here's the good news. Third point. We have creation. We have fall. We have redemption. Well, this is God, but God, because he is rich in mercy and love. And because he wanted to show us, uh, show us that love. Show us the love that he had for us, has for us, promised to make a way back to him. Even, even at that moment when he pronounces that curse on Adam and Eve, um, he, he gives a promise. He promised that the seed of the woman a son of man, uh, one who would be born of mankind, would someday come and crush the tempter, the one who, who tempted us and led us um, to our sin. Get it? And that promise gives us just a glimpse of the hope of being reconciled and restored. Um, often at this point when we're talking about the gospel, we jump to Jesus, but God didn't jump immediately to Jesus. Instead, there's like 4,000 years of other stuff happened. So I do want to talk about a little bit that because I think that's part of the gospel story too, that 4,000 years of what, heck, of what, of what happens next. What we see in those 4,000 years is God previews his ultimate redemption. He gives us pictures and concepts and reveals himself more and more to show us what his redemption is going to be. He does that by setting aside a people for himself, the people he would call his people, um, the people of Israel. The people of Israel are the descendants of Adam, the people God, that God promised that he would bless all the peoples of the earth through. He sets aside a people for himself to redeem. Through Moses, um, who comes in that line of people, um, that were promised the line of people coming from the seed of the woman, God would give his people um, deliverance, deliverance from bondage, deliverance from sla slavery, and he would also give them his law. Um, the words by which they were to understand who he is and what he desires and the words by which his people were to live by, um, how they were to understand him and live for him so that they could be spared from him, spared from his judgment. Um, God told them how to atone for their sins. They would atone for their sins through blood sacrifices. They would take a spotless, perfect animal and they would kill it as a sign uh, of of the promise that God will forgive sin through the washing of the blood of a perfect sacrifice. God gives that, so God gets, God sets them aside. God delivers them from bondage. God promises um, this blessing. Um, God reveals his law to them. <clears throat> and they would repeatedly sin over and over and over and over and over because that's, that's in our nature who we are. Despite having the law and knowing how to relate to God, Israel would ignore that. They would repeatedly sin in countless ways over and over and over. God delivers them out of 
Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery, out of suffering. And like days later, they're complaining, take us back because this is hard. They, we just over and over and over fail when we're left to ourselves. And we sin in countless ways. We turn, um, the people of Israel turn from him. They turn to other gods. What did God do about this? Over and over and over and over, God would punish them. Punish them in various ways, through military conquering, through raising up faithless leaders who would, who would lead them into bad situations, through natural disasters like famine, um, through, uh, and eventually he, he punished them through the loss of their kingdom and land. Um, eventually he gave them a land, he, he delivers them from Egypt, he gives them a land for themselves, and then uh, through generations of, of ebb and flow, but generally downhill ebb and flow um, to faithlessness, he just takes it away from them. Um, he conquers them, he scatters them, he, 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 he has them taken into captivity um, by, um, by the leaders. Throughout that time, though, he also shows his love and his mercy. At times, he would raise up good leaders who would deliver them for time. They would be faithful. Or he would send prophets to warn the people, urge them back to repentance, and sometimes they did. But in the end, they still returned to their sin. Why did God do all? Why did God take 4,000 years and do all of this? Um, he did all of this to tell us the mind of God. He, told, he, he wanted to tell us things about who he is and, and why he has made us. Um, he wanted to show that he has a people, that amongst all of creation, there are a people who are his, that he is going to, that he has chosen to love um, that he has established a special relationship with. And he wanted to prepare them for his ultimate redemption. Um, throughout those prophets who came to warn and tell them, um, turn and repent, those prophets also came with a promise that one would come up, that even as we struggle and even as nations conquer us and even as things are bad, there is one who is coming. An ultimate Messiah is the word um, that was used. A savior, a final deliverer. Um, everything that they had seen so far is God showing them that he's going to bring them a king, a savior, and a sacrifice. That ultimate redemption came through his son. His son with him for eternity. His son, fully God, chooses in obedience to set aside the fullness of his glory to become one of us, a man Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, to show that he was not only man, but that he was also God. Um, he lived a life of perfect obedience and submission to the Father, fulfilling the law that Israel had shown over and over and over that man was incapable of, of fulfilling, um, giving God's chosen people, um, proving to them over and over and over that they couldn't do it on their own. They couldn't do it without a Savior to do it for them. He came to proclaim that the kingdom of God had arrived, um, the kingdom of God, that, that God is king, that he is Lord, and that, um, and that he has raised for himself subjects, those who would love him and honor him and be um, the people that he loved. He came and taught, um, and he led men, and he healed, and he performed miraculous acts, all of these to demonstrate his power and his authority and his divine nature showing that he indeed was the Savior who had been promised, um, the Savior, the Christ. 
um, Jesus Christ means Jesus, our Savior. Um, he, came, he, he came to do all of those things. And then after he had done all of that teaching and leading and miraculous work, um, uh, after he had become, demonstrated himself to be, um, he didn't have to grow into it. It was something he always was. But after demonstrating that he was the perfect, spotless creature, um, just like the ones that the Jews had sacrificed for years for the atonement of their sin. Jesus died on a cross for us. Because our sin separated us for God, because our sin um, from the very beginning led to death, Jesus took death for us because that is what sin merited. But he had fulfilled no sin. He was the perfect sacrifice who could atone for sin once for all. And then, uh, and because he took the punishment of sin, he freed those who are, his, who are his from having to take that same punishment. And then he rose from the dead. And in doing so, he conquers death and hell and suffering for his people, his children. The life, death, and resurrection of Christ is where man is forgiven and justified. So we see this word justified over and over in verse 15, 16. Um, person is not justified by works of law, um, but by faith in Jesus. Um, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified, made right, set right with God. That's what that word means. Um, that, is, that is where we are justified. We are justified in what Christ has done. Where the power of sin is conquered and the tempter is crushed, as God promised. In Jesus Christ... Uh, is through whom God sets aside his people, adopting his sons and daughters through Christ. And it is in Christ uh, and, and, the, and what he has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection where we get the promise of a hope and a future because we are made one with him and in him. Shorter version, Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 10. And in him we have redemption um, through his blood. We've been purchased by his blood is what that says. The forgiveness of all our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That is our redemption. That is our redemption. So we had creation, we had fall, um, we have redemption. And that leads to the final point, consummation. Fancy word basically what consummation means. It's the point at which something is completed or finalized or finished. Um, the gospel is God, Christ's work on the cross. He said it is finished. Our, our restoration to him is finished, but all of creation was cursed. Um, there are still a world full of people who aren't submissive to the king. God promises that he's taking care of that too. Part of the gospel is what comes after what Jesus has done, uh, what, excuse me, what Jesus did on the cross. God started the process of consummation, that process of saying, my kingdom is here, I have finished the work of redemption, now let me show you me finishing the work uh, of, of restoring all things to me and I He starts that, not the day he's coming back, which we'll talk about in a second, but the day he, he left. Um, so he, 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 he rose from the dead, he, he taught his disciples in, in his new glorified body uh, for 40 days, and then he went to heaven. And that's when consummation starts, because he then sends his Holy Spirit to start his church. God starts the process of consummation through his church. 
Christ sent the Holy Spirit to his people, the people he set aside for himself, bringing us together to be his kingdom, his loyal subjects, those who would submit to him, um, to be his kingdom on this earth through faith in who Jesus is and what he has done for us, leading us to live lives, demonstrating that trust through our faithful obedience to him and love for each other and the world. Um, the church is where we see God's kingdom today. It is, so, so the kingdom's established, the kingdom is, it, it lives through us. Um, it lives through his church. Um, so that's how God starts the process, started the co- process of consummation. He preserves our consummation. He keeps us in it. And this is the one, that, this is the one that, that seems troubling, but it's not. He preserves our consummation through our earthly death. We still are in, we still are in cursed bodies. We're still in cursed creation. We will die. All of us here, there's a 100% chance that we're all going to die. And that is how God preserves our being made whole in him, on being restored in him. Because when we die here, we go to him. We go to him to live in heaven, um, to be with him. He preserves us for the final consummation. He finishes, completes the story of the gospel when Jesus comes again. The Bible tells us that Jesus is coming again. And when he comes, he's going to restore everything that was lost, everything that was cursed, all of his creation. Um, will be made right and whole. Revelation 21 verse 5 gives us the picture of this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Just like it was at the very beginning, God dwelt with man with, with no need for sacrifice, with no need for separation, with no need to, to, to buffer it, um, everything restored to the way it was. Um, he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The former things, the curse, the, the, the cursed earth, our cursed flesh, all taken care of, all gone forever and ever. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Um, he said, that also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is the gospel. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. The story of how God made man for his glory and then redeemed man after man rebelled by sending Jesus to rescue us from the punishment that our rebellion deserved. Okay, that's a really big story. You might say, well, how do I share the gospel with someone? You don't have to, put, I, I want to just show you the whole story. You don't have to give it, give that whole thing. Let me make it shorter. I have another four words. Um, this is how we apply the gospel to our life. We understand God. God, perfect, holy, righteous, existed eternally, created man, created all things, including man, to be with him. But man rebelled. Man chose to serve himself instead of serving God and thus earned the, earned the wages of his sinfulness, the wages of death and hell. But Christ, Christ came to live the perfect life we refused to live, to die a sinner's death in our place, and to rise again, defeating death and hell forever. 
so that in, the, in that stage of consummation, that consummation which comes to us because we respond, response. We respond with faith, faith in Christ Jesus. God, man, Christ responds. The gospel in 30 seconds. But that's the story. That's who we are. As a church, that's our focus. We talk about the gospel every week. We talk about Jesus has done every week. We sing about it every week. It's the focus of who we are. It is what we live for. It is what we created for. That is the response that Paul is talking about here in verse 16. We are justified by faith. When we have faith, when we trust in what Jesus Christ has done and nothing else, when we trust in what Jesus Christ has done and nothing else, this story is our story too. We are justified by trusting in him, not in our own efforts to follow him, not in our own efforts to follow his law, not uh, um, being part of the right religion or the right group. In verse 15, he talks about we're Jews and not sinful Gentiles. That's not, that's not the math anymore. The math is Jesus or not Jesus. Um, it's not because we did good works um, or it's not because we just tried to be a good person and did our best. None of those things restore us with Christ. The Bible tells us, in fact, that all those things are filthy rags. Not because they're not good in of itself. Going back, just like the pep talk, not because the pep talk isn't good, but because it's not ultimately good. Those things can't be good because they come from wicked, sinful hearts that need redemption. They need justification that only comes from trusting in Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. Okay, we know what the gospel is, and we have some verses left. So now we're going to look at what do we do with the gospel. If we have a gospel-centered church, if that big story of what God has done is our story, what do we as a church do with it to be gospel-focused? This passage shows us three things that God's people and churches can do with the gospel. Three things that the gospel, uh, that God, um, that, that churches can do with the gospel. When I say there are three things, only the third one's the good one. So understand the first two are going to be, these are things not to do with the gospel, but what churches can do. The first thing we can do is we can add to the gospel. We can add to the gospel. Now, um, let's read verse 11, 14, and see these things again. <clears throat> but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. When they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Yeah, Paul's upset. He's upset. Um, Because what has happened is that the Jewish believers here have added to the gospel. Conflict here has arisen because there were these certain men from James who, which caused fear to, um, the fear of the circumcision party. So let's figure out what those are. One of the biggest issues for the early church, if not the biggest issues for, issue for the early church, was overcoming the racial and cultural barriers between Jews and Gentiles. No longer does God choose his people through being a Jew, being one of, one of Israel. Instead, he chooses people through Jesus Christ. So, um, so, so the issue was overcoming that. We saw in the early expl- explanation before Christ, the Jews had been set apart as God's people, so their identity was caught up in being Jews. Good Jews were good Jews because they did good Jewish things. They did the things that, that the law told them to do. Um, so 
that's what they saw made them holy, and so that's what they thought were required to be holy, to be set aside, um, and thus made Gentiles unholy. Um, and even as Jews came to Christ, even as they became Christians, they still held on to these prejudices that God's people had to be Jewish or at least do Jewish things. Um, these men were known as, the word we use is Judaizers. Um, Christians wanting the Christian life to be the Jewish life, plus add Jesus onto that. Um, they, so they expected Gentiles to be circumcised. That was the sign of being a Jew. And they expected all the Jewish laws to be followed. They were the circumcision party. Uh, it says they came from James. All that means is that they're from Jerusalem. The, the early church in Jerusalem was probably the most Jewish of all the churches um, of the early days because Jerusalem was where the Jews were. Um, it was their city. So um, the early, so they would be the people most likely to want Christianity to look like, look like Jewishness. And what Paul's doing here is he's fighting that. He is fighting back against that idea that Gentiles believers would be required to be Jewish. Um, that he, they would be required to follow Jewish law. He knew that in Christ we had been set free from the law. So he, uh, back in, in chapter 1, he starts a letter essentially telling the Judaizers, how dare you so quickly desert um, your, these people? No. How quickly you desert the law of God? No. What he says, how quickly you desert the gospel by requiring law that the gospel doesn't require and then tells them, because they do this, tells them they are cursed, that they are cursed. A word we see God use again as he used before. You are cursed for following a false gospel, to take law and add law back into what Jesus Christ had already done was a curse. It negated everything that the gospel had done. Okay, now, for the most part, there's still churches out there, so I'm not going to say... No, for all of us. But for the most part, most churches aren't saying to be Christian, you got to do all this Jewish stuff. To be a real church, you got to do all that Jewish stuff. But we still do the same thing in other ways. Churches certainly do add to the gospel. Um, they do that um, through lots of things that man decides this is what we have to add. Um, to make sure that everybody's being a good enough Christian so that our church can be a good enough church. Um, churches will focus on certain types of music, um, or, and, some of the, and they'll be different. Uh, some churches will say, well, to be a good, to be a good you know, gospel-oriented church, we have to have organ and hymnal and choirs. And another church will say, no, to be a good gospel-oriented church reaching out to people, we have to have dimmed lights and a really cool worship band. Um, tell you that a real church, a real gospel church has to have Sunday school and Wednesday night prayer meetings or that they have to have small groups or that they have to have business meetings or they have to speak in tongues and, and have prophecies. All of these things that, that, that churches will say we have to put our focus on these other things um, takes the focus away from the gospel because none of those things come from the gospel. They're guidelines, they're preferences that have been so enforced by churches they've become the essence of the laws. And it's not just those things. They do it for people, too. Um, to, be, to be a good Christian, to be right in our church, you have to totally abstain from drinking alcohol. You can't watch a PG-13 or R-rated movie. You can't associate with certain types of non-Christians because people will get the wrong idea about who you are. You can't belong to a certain political party. Or, you, or, you know, or if you belong to the wrong one, you're certainly not a good Christian. You're certainly not, a, or maybe even certainly not a Christian at all. Um, if, you don't, if you don't support the right type of schooling, if you don't think it's okay to get tattoos, or we're getting to the place where some churches like, if you don't have tattoos, how can you relate to people? Um, 
Um, there's churches where you have to accept only one interpretation of biblical issues that not everybody agrees on. There are churches out there that if you're not what we call about the end times a premillennial dispensationalist, you're not, you can't be a member of their church because that's the real church. No. All of that stuff is stuff we add on to the gospel. When anything but the gospel becomes what it is uh, that defines us, that is called legalism. We try to add law beyond what God has required through the gospel, and that is dangerous. Galatians 5.24 says this. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, read that as if you accept that it has to be Jewish law plus Jesus, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You, would be ju- you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Adding to the gospel takes us away from the gospel. That's scary. That should make us run to the gospel as fast as we can and set aside all those things that we call our preferences. Um, we as a gospel-focused church do not add to the gospel. The gospel defines who we are. If God hasn't said it, then, then there, there is freedom, there is liberty. We don't add to the gospel. The second thing a church is, can do is that we can be ashamed of the gospel. We can be ashamed of the gospel. Paul's first complaint in this passage with the Judaizers um, you know, wasn't, wasn't his strongest complaint. He was talking about these men of Jerusalem, and they, but his complaint really was they've come and they've done this. What their complaint is, they've come and they've somehow shamed you into denying the gospel. Um, he complains most harshly about Cephas. Who's Cephas? Cephas is the Aramaic name for Peter. Peter. With the, the 12 apostles, Jesus' right-hand guy. The guy who, after he denied him, but Jesus came back, he's like, do you love me? I love you. Do you love me? I love you. Do you love me? I love you. You know, it's like, Peter is like, I'm, I'm yours now. Peter, who... When the Holy Spirit comes, gives the great sermon in Acts chapter 22, and 3,000 people come to Christ. Peter knows the gospel. Peter loves the gospel, and Peter's turning his back on the gospel. That's what, that's what Paul's complaining about here. Peter was living out the truth of the gospel. Um, uh, Paul says, before this, these men of Jerusalem came, you were hanging out with the Gentiles. You were eating with the Gentiles. And what that means is you weren't, you weren't following the Jewish dietary restrictions. You didn't let the fact that they were Gentiles and not approved of by the Jews dissuade you from having the relationship that comes with Christ. Um, you were doing the gospel at that point, but when they arrived, Peter's like, oh, maybe I should, these guys are here now, and they're going to report back circumcision, and things are going to get hard. Maybe, maybe, maybe I won't do that gospel thing so much. Maybe I better do the things they're doing to, for the sake of making sure everything stays okay. Um, and because Peter was Peter, um, because Peter was a pretty big deal, he's having such an influence over everybody else that all of these other believers are doing the same thing, including Barnabas, Paul's one-time partner in, in mission. Um, they, what they were doing was rejecting their brothers. They were rejecting their Gentile brothers. And Paul says this, is, this conduct is not in step with the gospel. By looking to placate the Jewish believers out of fear of them, he was denying who he was. He was denying who the Gentiles were in the gospel. He allowed his fear of being fully shaped by the gospel to prevent him from living out the gospel that he knew was true. He allowed his fear of being fully shaped by the gospel to prevent him from living out the gospel that he knew was true. And we, ourselves, and our churches can do this today as well. In the church today, and where I see this a lot is 
Um, we look at those legalists that I just talked about. We look at those people who, would, you know, who are old-fashioned or would add laws or, or don't like any of that newfangled stuff, and we, we look at that and we want to push back against that so hard and say, that's not us. We run too far the other way. Um, this, look, this can look like license. This can look like license. What I mean by license is that we feel like we're free to do anything we want. Wanting to show that we are not like legalistic Christians, we abuse our freedom in Christ and look way too much like um, someone who's never encountered the gospel. And sometimes we'll even badmouth other Christians who, who see things in ways that we don't think are, 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 are good enough or refined enough or acceptable enough um, so that we can score points with people we think are cooler. This can also look like a lack of courage. We are so afraid of what non-Christians or other enlightened people, quote, um, or those we work with, or those who we normally would agree about politics with or whatever. We're so worried about that, what they would think about us that if they knew we are Christians, they would not like us anymore. So we refuse to live as if the gospel had any change in us. Either of these things through rejection of Christ by substituting not law, but our comfort feed our appetites, to promote our popularity, or to be free from embarrassment for the gospel and thus deny the gospel. The gospel doesn't just say, it's done, go do what you want. The gospel says, it's done. Because when Christ went, remember how consummation started? He sent the spirit that now dwells and lives um, with us. God is in us, and God is going to live how God wants to live. Galatians 5.13, first part of it says, for you have called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Then later in verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If we are in Christ, we will not put aside the gospel when we think doing so will somehow be better for us. Because we're gospel-focused, we identify with the gospel, we will look different than the world, and we will not be ashamed of it. We will not be ashamed of it. We won't let the world take us away from the gospel. Last one of these categories. Um, so we don't we don't add to the gospel, and we're not ashamed of the gospel. What do we do? We abide in the gospel. And if we're gospel-focused, that's what we're going to do. Um, Paul's criticism of the Judaizers and those deferring from them is that they were not in step with the truth of the gospel. What that tells us is that we want to be in step with the truth of the gospel. So what does that mean? The word I've used to describe this is to abide. That word abide, looked up that word abide, I'm like, wow, this word has a lot of definitions, and wow, they all seem relevant. Um, means to remain to continue, to stay, to dwell or reside, to keep a particular attitude or relationship, to endure or sustain, to wait for, or to accept without opposition or question. All of these are things that define who we are in Christ. We remain in what Christ has done for us. We don't, we don't look for something else. We look at how we are sinful. That helps us define the world. That helps us define who we are. We rebelled against God. God is holy. His standard is really high. Christ's sacrifice, because his standard is high and we are really sinful, God, Christ's sacrifice is a really, really big deal. Um, the, the more we realize how, how unrighteous we are and the more holy we realize it, that cross that bridges us gets get just gets a bigger and bigger reality in our life. <clears throat> we remain in Christ. We continue in Christ. We endure in Christ. All these things show a conscious effort to be who and where and how Christ is. So this means for us that the gospel makes faith in Christ our priority. Verse, uh, Galatians 2 verse 20. For I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, 
but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. In Christ, we've died to our old selves, just as Christ died in his flesh. Um, we call that union in Christ. We have literally become one with him. Thus, what Christ wants from us, revealed by his word, by his spirit, that is what we want for our, us. So our views of ourselves, our views of other people, our thoughts, our actions, our political views, our, our way, our, our, our cultural views, all those things become more and more like Christ. We will always defer to him on things he said. I hate my enemy. I want to bomb my enemy. I want to shoot my enemy. God says, you're going to love your enemy. Jesus says, because I love them. So we defer. We defer to him. We make our faith in him our priority. The gospel makes love for others our, pr our priority. So as a church, um, we make love for others our, pr our priority. Galatians uh, 5.13, the rest of 13 and verse 14. Through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is still law, and that law is simple. Go love. Go love. Um, because of the gospel, we are no longer our priority. Um, others are our priority. As Christ sacrificed so much of himself for us, we sacrifice our, ourselves for each other and for those who don't know Christ, for those in the world. We're willing to give up our rights. We're willing to give up our stuff. We're willing to give up our time um, for the sake of each other, for the sake of others, because that's what Jesus did. Jesus gave up his, the, the fullness of his deity. There's nothing in our lives which comes even close to being that important, okay? Your, your, your car, Netflix, whatever, none of it. None of it can be the ultimate glory of God dwelling in me, okay? Whatever it is, it's, it's, we're just not that big a deal, um, but he's a big deal. So we, we set aside and sacrifice ourselves for the sake of others. Last one, the gospel makes dying to ourselves a priority. Galatians 5, verse 24, and those who belong to Christ, Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Because of the gospel, because of what Jesus Christ has done in us and for us, we want our lives to authentically represent who Jesus is and what he has done. He has given us the Holy Spirit to help us do that. So in the Spirit, we look to stop sinning. We look to stop living like one who hasn't encountered Christ, but instead we live as one who is his. We stop living as the world says to live. Instead, we live to Christ. We live in Christ and we live as Christ. Um, in this same chapter, uh, Galatians chapter 5, in the same chapter, Galatians chapter 5, um, he talks about what it means to walk in the Spirit, is to have the fruit of the Spirit. And you've, if you've been in church for any portion of your life, you've, you've heard these before. Love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are not selfish things. Those are not selfish things. Those are not things that seek to serve us. They're things that have us live outside ourselves. We, and those are the things we brace. We let God grow these things in us and through us so that the world can see them from us. We abide in the gospel by making him and others and dying to ourselves our priority. As members of churches should be, and as, member, and as Chorus is, this is what we strive to be. We strive to be a church that is gospel-focused. Remember who God is what we did to separate us from him, and what he did to bring us back. We trust in him. We trust in him. We call that faith. And that faith and nothing else restores us to him. And because we are made his, we abide in him, making Christ 
others and life in the spirit our priority. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you, thank you that you were merciful and gracious and loving. We fled, we turned our back, we rebelled. Um, we love our sin. We love ourselves, and yet you loved us so much that you sent Jesus Christ to die for us, to restore us to you, and to make for yourself a people, a people you've chosen because you love us so much. Lord, let us here at Chorus always remain focused on, on your story. Let your story shape our minds. Let your story fill our hearts. Let, our story, let your story reach deep into our souls. And let your story motivate our hands and our feet as we love you and love others for the sake of you, for the sake of your glory, and for the sake of your glorious gospel. Lord, we pray this in your son Jesus Christ's name. Amen.